Uh, as we regularly do, uh, we are going to begin our time in God's Word. We're going to read the text that we're going to be talking about together. Uh, and as we read, I want you guys to pay careful attention to this. I want you to pay careful attention to Paul's Christ-like determination to make the gospel known. So please follow along with me, starting in Acts chapter 21, verse 26, as we begin our time with the reading of God's word. Verse 26 begins. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who has been teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then, they, then all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more silent. Please join with me in prayer. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we come before you this morning confessing again that it is only through the blood of Jesus that we can stand before you today. And we thank you for passages like this psalm that we had just read that reminds us that you are worthy of all praise. We just sung about that, that, that you are the author of salvation, the righteous judge, and that you are the giver of new life. We pray for our neighbors, both locally and globally, who have yet to sing those joyful praises. Like the persecuted church in Nigeria and India who constantly face persecution from Islamic extremists and Hindu nationalist groups. Lord, we pray that the truth of the gospel will bring knowledge of Christ to these people groups. We pray, Lord, for spiritual hunger among the Nigerians and the Asians of India that will only be satisfied by none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We pray for more workers, gospel laborers who will be able to sow more gospel seeds. And we pray for God's spirit to strengthen and protect new believers, new converts, to empower their lives for faithful witness. We pray for all those around the globe who have not yet placed their faith and their trust in Christ. And we pray that they are drawn to know Jesus, the rock of our salvation. As we regularly do, we pray for our children here this morning that you have blessed us with and we pray that they come to know Jesus at a young age and that you spare them from seasons of rebellion. Please grow in them a desire to know you. We pray for all those who are serving all over campus with the media, social media texts, all the way to the sound crew, the people serving downstairs. Lord, we pray that you give them fresh joy as they serve. And as Matt prayed earlier, for for the hurting, for the weak, may your peace and your strength abound. We pray for all those battling sickness and those recovering. We pray that that they find comfort that only comes from knowing you. And we pray for all those family members and medical staff who are caring for them. May, may you be their strength. May you be their source of rest. Spirit, guide them in times of frustration, times of feeling defeat. And for them too, Lord, we pray for a fresh joy today and strength that only comes from you. We pray for all the students. Pray for the handful of middle school students that we see from week to week in the high school students. May you strengthen them. Carry them through the struggles that they face day to day on their campuses and at home. And may you continually draw them to know your grace every day. We pray for all those who are married and those uh, who are struggling in their marriages, maybe even those with young families. Lord, we, we pray that you grant them wisdom for their relationships, reveal to them their sin and guide them in your grace. Give them joy. And we pray for all our young singles and all our other students and our college students, may you sustain them during stressful times. May they delight in knowing your nearness. We pray for those who are new, those who are visiting with us here, maybe even looking for a church. We pray that you guide them to experience the immeasurable joy of knowing you, and for those that don't know you, that they experience salvation and peace that only comes through knowing Christ. We pray that you guide us as we study your word this morning in the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen, amen. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We've been journeying through the book of Acts in this series entitled Becoming His Church and What is the goal of our series? What are we doing in the series that we start all the way in January? The goal of this series is to become his church through the study of his word. Very quickly, I want to kind of talk about where we live. We live in a time where Paul's example is a much needed encouragement to persecuted Christians from all around the world. Again, Paul's example is a much-needed encouragement to persecuted Christians all around the world. Consider the report of a frontline worker in Nigeria just three weeks ago. The report reads, on March 17, 2018, Reverend Adamu Ardo was on an evangelistic outreach when a group of young Muslim men broke into the house where he was staying and attacked him and his Muslim friend. The assailants beat Amadu with clubs and machetes. They also beat his friend, the Muslim friend, because he was associating with a Christian. The friend who was not severely injured was able to rush Adamu to a hospital. And after several months and numerous surgeries, Amadu remarkably survived but he lost the use of his right hand and developed a speech impediment. His his Muslim friend was shocked by how his Islamic brothers had treated his friend and said, if that's the way they act, then I don't want to be a Muslim anymore. 
Reverend Adamu has been unable to work since the attack seven months ago, and frontline worker says he is not able to support his wife and five children. Now, a week prior to this, let's change the scene. A week prior to this, another frontline worker in India published a report, and it was entitled, Pastor Sent Home to Die After a Severe Beating. It reads, Pastor Rajan, an impoverished day laborer with three children ages two, seven, and 13 years old. He also pastors four house churches. During a church service at his father's house, local members of Hindu nationalist groups burst in and beat him severely. They had arrested him and they paid the police to beat him as well. He was eventually released, but he was in such bad shape that he was unconscious for a day and a half. He, su- he suffered a few fractured ribs and severe bruising. Pastor Rajan was released from the hospital in June, but he has multiple brain bleeds and that cannot be repaired surgically, and the doctors expect him to die. On top of this, frontline workers believe that based on his situation and how he is right now, that he will not live much longer. Church family, how should we respond to reports like this? What do we do with them? And I'll take this a step further. What do we do when our faithfulness feels like failure? You know, perhaps you yourself are not experiencing persecution, Christian, but maybe you feel like you're failing despite your faithfulness in gospel ministry. Maybe you're you're struggling to find hope, meaning, significance to your day-to-day devotion to God. Maybe some of you other Christians are, are weary from trite comments from unbelieving coworkers, and you silently frequent that same question week after week after week. Is all of this sacrificial ministry really worth it? It's for Christians like yourself and Christians like Adamu and Rajan that Paul's example is much needed encouragement for every persecuted Christian all around the world. This section in chapter 21 tells us how God continues to work in his church despite persecution. Within days of arriving in Jerusalem, Paul is conspired against. He is falsely accused. He is dragged. He is beaten. He is arrested. And Paul is tried. But once again, we see that this story is not just about Paul. This is God's story. God rescues Paul from another violent mob by the most unlikely of people. God orchestrates yet another opportunity for Paul to share about Jesus to the very people who wish to kill him. And God grants Paul the boldness to share about Christ to them all. The title of the sermon this morning is When Faithfulness Feels Like Failure. And again, we'll be in Acts chapter 21, verse 26, through chapter 22, verse 2. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Maybe, maybe you're exploring the Christian faith. Maybe you're looking for some understanding I want to again encourage you, as I've done before, that studying about God's church, studying about the church through the study of the Bible, it will help you learn a lot more about Jesus. If you're not a Christian this morning, my hope for you is that you will not only witness Paul's great love for Jesus and his church, but that you personally will be drawn to Jesus through the power of the gospel today. Christians, 
my hope is that you will be encouraged by Paul's determination to share the gospel. And that you yourself will examine your gospel sharing strategy. For this, I want to offer three principles that fortify Christians in difficult times of gospel ministry. The first principle is, Christian, you must keep your eyes fixed on the gospel. Again, the first principle is keep your eyes fixed on the gospel. You're going to see this in verses 26 and 27. Paul never lost sight of the gospel. Even when he was told that others in the church would not receive him well, he was driven by a gospel-centered heart to display the unity of the church. This section in chapter 21 picks up where we left off last week. In fact, we're taking uh, the very tail end, last verse 26, and starting with that this morning. Paul safely arrived in Jerusalem and was given a warm welcome by Christians from the Jerusalem church. And the next day, the text says that he went to visit the leaders of the Jerusalem church. He, he greeted them and began to tell them all the things that God had done one by one while ministering to the Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jewish people. This was ref- This was further evidence that the good news, the gospel message, was truly for every person from every nation. And when they heard Paul's good ministry report, what happened? Luke seems to put it in such a way that they immediately worshipped God because of what they had heard. At some point in this celebration, the love offering from the non-Jewish Christians that was presented, uh, it was presented to the church, what had been collected all this time that Paul had been bringing to them was finally presented. And this gift to the church would not only help the poor in Jerusalem, but it would also serve as an expression of the unity that the Gentile Christians shared with the Jewish Christians. As they were praising God for what he was doing in the Gentile world, as they were praising God for what he was doing in the unity of the church, this is when James takes an opportunity to inform Paul of some good news and some kind of bad news. What's the good news and the bad news? James informs him and says, the good news is that God has brought several thousand Jews to salvation in Jesus. That's awesome. But what's the bad news? The bad news is that there have been some rumors that have been spreading. And these rumors are casting doubt upon Paul's reputation and his ministry. You see, many of these Jewish Christians were still zealous to keep the religious customs, and many of them loved Paul. The word on the street is that Paul is urging Jewish Christians to renounce their Jewish customs, and their cultural heritage. But James and the other pastors, they knew that these rumors were not true of Paul. They they knew Paul's heart. They all agreed together that salvation came from grace alone through faith alone in Christ. They all agreed that following these cultural practices and abiding to the works of the law alone could not save. But they also knew that these rumors, if not carefully addressed, it will threaten the unity of the church. And because James and Paul kept their eyes fixed on the gospel, what did they do? They devised a gospel-driven plan that would reveal Paul's Christ-like heart for his countrymen. James proposed that Paul should participate in a vow in order to demonstrate, again, demonstrate, not make up, to to demonstrate, to reveal the regard that he already had for Jewish Christian customs. And Paul agreed. Paul, in agreement with this proposal from James and the other pastors, he took the four men and on the next day purified himself along with them and went to the temple. How do we know that Paul kept his eyes fixed on the gospel? 
I want to remind you, as Matt mentioned last week, this is not something that Paul was obligated to do. He could have simply dismissed these criticisms about himself and rolled out some sort of a speech along the lines of, let the haters hate. I'm going to do what I want to do. Yet out of humility and his grace-enabled love for the church, Paul agreed to do whatever it took for the sake of the gospel, as long as it did not compromise the gospel. And in this one verse, we witness this powerful illustration of Paul's ministry principle that he laid out in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul wrote, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win some of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win those under the law. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Therefore, Paul pays for the vow expenses of these four men. This was a very, very expensive gesture that communicated his heart for the unity of the church and the spread of the gospel. This, this is how Paul kept his eyes fixed on the gospel. Church, to help you keep your eyes fixed on the gospel, my first exhortation this morning to you is immerse yourself in the gospel daily. In order to keep your eyes fixed on the gospel, immerse yourself in the gospel daily. Christian, it is very difficult to keep your eyes fixed on the gospel if you do not know what the gospel is or if you are not able to communicate what the gospel is. Maybe, maybe you are like the majority of Christians who simply define the gospel as good news. Or someone asks you, what's the gospel? And you say, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And, and although those are very true statements, there are only pieces of the gospel story. A partial gospel at best. It would be important for us to clarify, what do I mean when I use this term, gospel? What is the gospel? For those of you that have been participating with us on Monday nights, uh, this is where I get to practice my five-fold gospel communication. Um, and this is another uh, plug. Uh, if you guys are interested in learning how to communicate the gospel well and faithfully, I want to invite you on Mondays. Uh, tomorrow, 6.30, we're going to be doing this. So, uh, again, what is the gospel? The gospel, this is one way to present, the gospel is God's story. We can break it up into five sections. Creation, sin, promise, Jesus, and his church. Creation. In the very beginning, nothing existed except God. God who is holy. God who is never created. He never had a beginning. God who is love, that he was there. And out of the overflow of his love, God created everything, including the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And they were created to know and enjoy God's perfect love forever by trusting God's goodness and obeying his good word of instruction. See, in this very good beginning, Ab and Eve enjoyed a right relationship with God. Creation. Two, sin. But instead of loving God, instead of trusting and obeying him, they doubted God's goodness. They disobeyed his good word of instruction. 
This is called sin. And this is what broke the good relationship between God and humanity. Sin both enslaves humanity and it makes us guilty before a holy, perfect God. On their own, there was nothing that man could ever do to make the relationship with God right again. Creation, sin, promise. God made a promise to Adam and Eve that one of their descendants would make a way that would rescue them from their sin and restore that relationship again with God. And for many, many years, humanity long awaited for their hero to arrive. Creation, sin, promise. Jesus. The hero of God's story is Jesus. Jesus, who is fully man, fully God, came, fulfilled all the promises of God. He took the punishment that humanity deserved for their sin and died in their place. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, which displayed his power over death and his authority to give new life. And this new life is for anyone who repents and believes in him, that they will be in right relationship with God forever. Creation, sin, promise, Jesus, and the church. After Jesus resurrected from the dead, he spent 40 days instructing his followers about his plan to spread this good news, the gospel. First, he was going to give them his Holy Spirit. Secondly, he was going to give him the mission. And thirdly, he gave them another promise of his return. His spirit was given, the church was born, his mission began, and his promise was fulfilled. Today, Anyone who repents and believes in Jesus is added to the church, God's family, and shares in the mission to spread the good news to all peoples of the earth so that they too will believe in Jesus and be in right relationship with God. This is God's story. This is the gospel. Paul kept his eyes fixed on the gospel. It's God's big story. Paul was immersed in the gospel in such a way that his thoughts, his motivations, his actions couldn't help but be saturated with the good news of the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, keep your eyes fixed on the gospel by immersing yourself in it daily. The second principle that fortifies Christians in difficult times of gospel ministry is keep your mind fixed on the truth. We're going to see that in chapter 21, verses 27 through 36. Keep your mind fixed on the truth. Paul never lost focus on the truth of the gospel, how it leads to truth, Jesus Christ. It is for that reason that when blatant lies about him were spreading, that he remained faithful to his message, the gospel. In verse 27, the gospel-driven plan that James and the pastors introduced and, and, Peter, or, and Paul agreed to seems to take a turn for the worst. Luke writes that Paul was in the process of purification at the temple. And remember, in order for Paul to participate with the four men in their Nazarite vow, Paul himself needed to undergo a ritual purification for himself. That would have required Paul to be present at the temple on the third and on the seventh day of his purification. But while Paul was just about to complete his seven days of purification in the temple, he was spotted by some old enemies. These Jews were not the Christian believers from Jerusalem. Rather, they were from the Roman province in Asia. They were probably from Ephesus since they identified Trophimus, who was from that city. And what did they do? They began to stir up 
the crowd, the whole crowd, at the temple, and they apprehended him. This verse, verse 27, is this major turning point, this pivotal turning point in Paul's life and ministry. Before this, since the time Paul became a Christian in Acts 9, he has been able to do gospel ministry freely. Some of us share in that type of freedom. But from this point forward, in verse 27, Paul will be doing ministry as a prisoner. Again, when Luke writes, they laid hands on him, he is not describing a time of prayer. He's describing a scene where a group of Paul's enemies have taken hold of Paul in order to stir up a mob against him. The charges that they made against Paul were twofold. First, the first charge that they accused him of was that he was teaching everyone everywhere, hear that exaggeration, everyone everywhere against the Jewish people and the Jewish law and this Jewish place, the temple. Secondly, they accused Paul of opposing the Jewish law and the sanctity of the temple as a whole. It would be important to note that these were the same false accusations that they laid against Jesus. These are the same charges that they brought against Stephen before their death sentences. And Paul would have been very aware of this bad sign. At this point, Paul recognizing these accusations, Paul could have backed out. He could have even pulled his Roman citizenship card, if if one existed, to protect himself from getting beaten further and to appeal before Roman authorities. But instead, Paul kept his mind fixed on the truth. That God has been guiding him here all along at this time for the sake of the gospel. Nonetheless, these false accusations spread like wildfire. Luke writes that all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. This would have probably included some of the thousands of Jewish Christians that were zealous for the law. They were duped into believing the lies against their beloved Paul. Now that the mob was formed, these Jews from Asia finally get their way. and They have their help to do it. The rioting mob seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And perhaps they intended to beat Paul to death. And that they didn't want Paul's dead carcass to defile the temple. As one pastor notes, too impatient to drag him out of the city and stone him the correct way, as had been done with Stephen, they intended to beat the apostle to death on the spot. And at once the gates of the temple were shut. While Paul was being beaten by this mob, word had spread to the tribune, the commander of the Roman cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And in Acts 23, verse 26, and later in chapter 24, verse 22, we are told that this Roman commander's name is Claudius Lysias. We'll be referring to uh, this man as Claudius from this point forward. He's a man whose cohort consisted of 1,000 men, and whose job was to maintain order in Jerusalem. He needed to keep the peace. That's what he was paid to do. Upon hearing the report of this riot, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran to the scene. The plural form of the Greek word centurion suggests that at least 200 men were present. This was a show of force that communicated the seriousness of this scene. And when the rioters saw Claudius and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, probably for fear of them being arrested or beaten themselves by Roman authorities. And assuming that Paul was the cause of this riot, Claudius came up and arrested him and ordered that he be bound between two soldiers with two chains. And this was fulfilling an earlier prophecy from Agabus, chapter 21, that Paul was going to be bound. Claudius began asking Paul who he was and what he had done. But the unruly mob continued to yell in confusion. 
And Claudius, he couldn't get a clear answer because some in the crowd were shouting one thing and the other another. Therefore, he wanted to question Paul in private and ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And as the soldiers were escorting Paul to the steps, the crowd became increasingly violent once more. In reckless anger and a loss of fear for the 200 Roman soldiers, the crowd became even more aggressive, shoving their way to get their hands on Paul. The Roman soldiers had to actually carry Paul above their heads to keep the crowds from killing him. Nonetheless, this didn't stop the mob of people from following them to the stairs, crying out, away with him. In other words, kill him, dispose of him. But at this point, did Paul fold? Did Paul compromise the truth in order to appease the crowd? No. Instead, Paul kept his mind relentlessly fixed on the truth. Christian, another hard love moment, tough love moment. Christian, if you are living out your faith in such a way that it never offends the world around you, the truth is you're either not living out your faith or your faith is not actually rooted in the gospel. Listen to the words of Paul in his upcoming imprisonment in Rome. Paul will later write this promise to Timothy. Indeed, this is what Paul writes, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. G.C. Ryle said it best, laughter, ridicule, opposition, and persecution are often the only reward which Christ's followers get from this world. Closet Christian, if you've never lived out your faith, if you've hid comfortably away from the gospel ministry, I implore you, repent. Believe again in the power of the gospel and by grace, visibly, visibly live out your faith in such a way that you can keep your mind decidedly fixed on the truth. Christian, if you have experienced opposition, it's passages like these that should bring you much encouragement. I want to encourage you. You are not alone. Not only do you have the stories of Paul's faithfulness despite his persecution, but you have the promise of Jesus himself who says that he's with you always to the end of the age. To help you keep your mind fixed on the truth, my second exhortation this morning is prepare for opposition prudently. That means with wisdom. Prepare for opposition prudently. Paul lived out his faith in such a way that it was visible. He knew that there was going to be opposition. He was prepared for it. Paul knew God had been guiding him all along to be here in Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel at this time. And he was ready for whatever God was going to will to happen. What are some of the ways that Christians today can prepare for opposition for this? I want to offer a few short statements that Peter will write in another letter. Peter offers several ways Christians can prepare for opposition prudently. 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised by opposition, but be alert in prayer. Chapter 3, don't be afraid nor angered but respond in grace and truth. Again, in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, develop in your gospel fluency. That means being able to communicate the gospel. Develop in your gospel fluency. Know how to share the gospel message. Chapter 5 of 1 Peter, don't lose hope. And again, remember that you're part of his church. And also in chapter 1 and chapter 5, 
as you're being persecuted, as you prepare for further persecution, don't forget to anticipate Jesus' return. That should be the fuel for the mission. The final principle that fortifies Christians in difficult times of gospel ministry is keep your heart fixed on the mission. Keep your heart fixed on the mission. Paul's missional heart is evident in the way that he addressed Claudius and this bloodthirsty mob. Paul didn't recant from his faith. He didn't retaliate with words of outrage. And on top of that, he didn't even defend himself. Instead, he knew that his time was limited. And he knew that they needed to hear the gospel of grace before he died. You see, church, when when people treasure Christ above everything else, they will find every opportunity to tell others about Christ. Paul, as he wrote earlier in chapter 20, Paul did not account his life of any value. Rather, his heart was fixed on the mission. As he explained earlier to the Ephesian elders, his desire is that he wanted to finish the course and the gospel ministry that he received from Jesus. So in verse 37, Paul breaks his silence. I want you to look at the passage up until this point. Paul did not speak until now. Paul broke his silence. And an interesting yet short conversation takes place between Paul and Claudius. In the barracks, it's very interesting. Paul humbly asks Claudius, may I say something to you? Confused and surprised by the proficiency of Paul's Greek, Claudius asks Paul, do you know Greek? To Romans, Greek was the language of cultured men. Claudius assumed that Paul, to be, he was a common criminal, not an educated man. And because he spoke Greek, he also assumed that Paul was the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men to attack the walls of Jerusalem. What's the story about? Jewish historian Josephus records this account where roughly three years before this scene, a false prophet from Egypt gained a large following by presenting himself as the new Moses or the new Joshua. And this false prophet from Egypt predicted that when he gathered his followers around the walls of Jerusalem, its walls would fall like Jericho and would make Roman forces vulnerable. Hearing this, the Romans attacked this group as they made their way to the Mount of Olives. There were thousands and thousands of followers, of which hundreds were captured and or died in this attack. And the rest of the followers, the other several thousand, vanished, including the Egyptian. So Claudius believes, looking at the fact that Paul could speak eloquent Greek, he had great rhetoric and there was a mob forming. He put all those together in an equation and said, you must be that Egyptian. And he asks Paul, are you this man? Look at Paul's response. Paul replied that he was a Jew, which meant that he had all the rights and all the privileges to be right where he was in the temple. Paul seems to be withholding the fact here that he was a Roman citizen, something that he will later reveal explicitly only after he gets to share about Jesus to this mob. But for now, he shares that he is a citizen of Tarsus in Cilicia, Paul is right to say that Tarsus is no insignificant city, as it is recognized in that time period as one of the three great uh, cities of Asia Minor and was the cultural center of Stoic philosophy, Hellenism, as well as rhetoric. In other words, Paul is saying that he is not a political threat to Claudius or to Rome. 
Therefore, Paul boldly requests permission to speak to the people. And Claudius allows it in hopes that the crowd would somehow be quelled. This is yet another great example that Paul seized every opportunity to make the gospel known. With a motion of his hand, the unruly crowd responded with a great hush. And then Paul addressed them in the Hebrew dialect, possibly Aramaic. His opening defense speech begins with this greeting, brothers and fathers, in which he respectfully identifies with them as a Jew himself. And I wonder if in this introduction, Paul is hearkening back to the same speech that Stephen made before he was executed with the throwing of stones, in which Paul himself was the one who oversaw. The crowd, in response to Paul's ability to speak to them in the Hebrew dialect, became even more quiet. He then went on to tell them of his Jewish heritage and how it led him to follow Christ. And as one pastor comments, Paul used this defense opportunity to save himself as an occasion to speak the good news of the gospel. Again, Paul seized every opportunity to make the gospel known. Paul continued to keep his heart fixed on the mission that was given to him by Christ. And to help you keep your heart fixed on the mission, my final exhortation this morning is, fulfill the mission increasingly. I think my dad might be watching this online. Hey, dad. Uh, When others would ask my dad when he would retire, the ongoing joke, uh, I remember that he would often say with a jolly smile, what are you talking about? I'm a teacher until Jesus comes. In the same regard, Christians can learn a lot from this man's heart. Christian. As long as you are still breathing, you have a mission to fulfill. Christian, you are a missionary until Jesus returns or your final breath. Recorded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And it always comes with that special promise from Christ himself. And behold, I am with you always to the end of this age. Christian, you are saved by the blood of the Lamb and have been commissioned by him to tell the nations in hopes that they too will experience the salvation through faith in Christ alone. And if anyone teaches that Christians are not obligated to share the gospel to non-Christians, they have not only dangerously misappropriated the words of Jesus himself, but they have proven themselves unfit to teach. Part of going, part of following this great commission, part of making disciples presupposes that every Christian is going out and sharing the gospel to non-Christians. You can't disciple if they're not Christians to disciple. Paul himself writes in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? Paul also writes, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And it saddens my heart to see so many of my friends who I once served along with in ministry who no longer attend the church. On occasion, I get to reflect with some of them about our great times of ministry together, and I ask them, what happened? What made you stop? But most of the responses that I hear are, we already did our part. We were already faithful. Now now I need to focus on my career, my family, my financial future, my retirement. Church family, Christian, if, if you look back on your life and you recognize that there was a time when you were at the height of your passion to share the gospel, my question for you today is, what happened? 
What made you stop? That today is not the height of that passion. And what's stopping you from dusting off that passion today and picking up right where you left off? Christian, we are all called to share the gospel. Not just the pastors, not just the young people, not just the new Christians who are still excited. There is no such thing as the bench-warming Christian. There are no second-string Christian missionaries. Everyone is on the field. And there is no such thing as a Christian that retires from their missionary service. No matter if you're in middle school or you're in your 90s, don't behind these excuses any longer. Let me say it again in case you missed. Christian, keep your heart fixed on the mission and fulfill it increasingly, more and more, day by day, until Jesus returns. I want to end with this quote. Spurgeon said it this way, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're exploring the Christian faith, looking for understanding, again, studying about the church through the study of the Bible will help you learn a lot about Jesus. If you're not a Christian, my great hope for you this morning is that you have not only witnessed Paul's great love for Jesus and his church, but that you personally will be drawn to Jesus through the power of the gospel today. And Christian, my hope is that you have been encouraged by Paul's determination to make the gospel known. My hope is that you yourself have been examining your gospel-sharing strategy, and maybe for some of you, you realize you don't have a gospel-sharing strategy. Maybe it's been years since you shared the gospel. I want to encourage you. Come talk to me after this. We would love to come alongside you and equip you for gospel ministry Christian, this is what it means to be his church. This is what it means to be a Christian witness when faithfulness feels like failure. 